The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is no substitute for professional care by your doctor or your qualified healthcare professional. Never disregard or delay professional medical advice because of something you've heard on this podcast or in any linked material. Guests who speak on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Dr. Shirley neither endorses nor opposes any particular opinion discussed on this podcast. The views expressed on this podcast have no relation to those of any academic, hospital, practice, institution, or other entity with which Dr. Shirley may be affiliated. Welcome to Forever Fab, the podcast on fashion, the art of living, and all things beauty. This podcast is curated by Dr. Shirley Madir, MD, as the definitive source of holistic wellness through beauty. Welcome to the Forever Fab Podcast, the podcast dedicated to fashion, the art of living well, and all things beauty. I'm your host, Dr. Shirley Madair, your purveyor of this definitive source of living a beautiful life. And this week's episode is dedicated to transformation. I am here with Michaela Angela Davis, and our topic today is Your Image is Your Signature, Style and Gender in the New Culture. Welcome, Michaela. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for saying yes. Mm -hmm. Michaela Angela Davis is a writer, stylist, mentor, image activist, um, so much more. I don't think I could find the words to explain how an amazing Wonder Woman that she is, but I'll tell you a little bit about her. From an early age, she was a student of the arts, and that included acting. She began her studies at the Duke Ellington School, right? Yeah, Duke. Duke Ellington School of the Arts in Washington, D.C. as a national arts scholar and then went to college at New York University. She also studied at the Stella Adler Acting Conservatory and the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. <laughs> <laughs> After completing her studies, Michaela went to work in 1991 for Essence Magazine, the inimitable Essence Magazine, as an associate fashion editor and has styled a number of celebrities and high-profile individuals. She was the founding fashion director for Vibe magazine, and she was the last editor-in-chief of Honey magazine, which I loved. I, I know. love Honey, too. I know it remains in spirit. It does. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Michaela went on to become the chief creative consultant and editorial brand manager for the rebranding of Black Entertainment Television, or BET, and she's been featured in documentary films and serves on the board of Black Girls Rock, Imagination, and the Brooklyn Community Arts and Media High school. Michaela, on top of that, is involved in some incredible projects, which I hope we'll talk about later, and serves her community by mentoring women of all tribes. Michaela has won many prestigious awards, including Phenomenal Woman, Trailblazer Award, and two Empowerment Awards, and she's also won my heart. <laughs> so welcome again, Michaela, and thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. You are pretty phenomenal. So let's dig a little bit deeper into your past. You were born in Germany, is that right? Yes. But I, raised in Washington, D.C. in America. Yes. But you were named after an Italian. Explain. Yes. <laughs> so my my uh, father was in the military. Mm. So that's the Germany part. Yes. Uh, while in Germany and pregnant with me, my mother was at the Sistine Chapel and oh. was enamored with Michelangelo yes. and decided that she would name me that if I were a boy, <laughs> which she thought she would because we, there were two girls already and one boy, and I would have, like, evened it out. Yes. Um, but alas, here I am. And so she named me after 
uh, Michelangelo, but it has become very useful because most people think I'm named after Angela Davis or I'm Angela Davis's daughter. So let me oh get this straight. I, oh, God. I get that so much. <laughs> oh, I love your mother. I'm like, I do too. <laughs> you know, so um, while she is my soul sister, yes. Angela Davis is not my mother. No. Um, but in Washington, D.C., really... I wasn't just raised there. It informed me. Mm. It was Chocolate City. Mm-hmm. It was a city full of black leadership, black imagination, black art, um, black fashion, black life. Everyone, whether it was your doctor or the person that delivered the mail, you could live and see black leadership. And you could see the expansion of black uh, life and particularly yes. black professional life. Yeah. So that's very critical to my um, makeup. Yeah. And then also Duke Ellington School of the Arts is a gem of an institution where it poured, it poured not only love into me, yeah. but worth and mm, self-esteem. And, self-esteem. And, and as artists, we were encouraged. We were told we were, if not as good, but better than others because we knew Shakespeare and we knew our culture. We, we studied, the, you know, European classics, but also... African-American classics, African-American literature, African-American culture, African culture. So we were very well equipped to compete Mm. as artists, but we were also, and this is to their brilliance, they armed us with confidence and pride in our culture. Yeah. Which is hard to find these days. Yeah, and it's and ma- it's a critical difference, particularly when you are you know talented or or smart, and yeah. you have to and you want to go to one of those institutions, and you want to go to you know I got into a very prestigious acting conservatory, and I did not feel less than, mm-hmm. even though I was the only black person. They didn't know I was black, and right. everyone knows I'm light skinned, <laughs> like super light skinned. Yeah. And back then. It you know I was in it was the eighties and I was dressing very kind of new wave yes. and I had finger waves yes. blonde finger waves kind of like Missy yes but, and I wore red lipstick and I shaved my eyebrows off right so they didn't know what I they was didn't know, they didn't know what box and to put you in I made a reference that I was black and they did not know mm. and um, it was literally actually that was the first encounter with racism you know because I was at the act at the conservatory and I was given very challenging roles I was given a role to be um, Henry as Henry to be in uh, you know um, to be a woman and play Henry Henry yeah in a Shakespeare in Shakespeare in a Shakespeare um, it was a monologue it was a yeah. scene study class and then when they discovered I was black my next assignment was mama from raising it in the sun now interesting Lorraine Hansberry is brilliant. brilliant. I just I realized then that's probably the only reference of any play by any black person they had. And in in keeping with the way that the conservatory worked, you would have given mama to a white male to stretch him. Right. But it was immediately once they knew I was black, they found the only black play they had and gave me the mama role. And so that's when I was like, oh, wow. This is what and this then I, is. And I also realized, I looked at my curriculum, not one, I don't even know if we really dealt with any women, but no authors of color, mm. whether it was in acting or in literature. Like, they just did not deal yeah. with our language and our culture. Yeah. And you're, it's the, it was the most um, expensive uh, school in the country. 
So you're paying for this education that is so limited. And incomplete. And incomplete. And that's when it dawned on me as a student, oh, we're learning what they want us to learn. Yes. And, and That's pervasive. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So then after your studies and you had actually like a triple education, mm-hmm. right? You were armed with the European studies, with African-American studies, and then there was the reality of the studies of life, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So after that, you're armed with all of this and you decide to go into fashion, yep. right? So what is it about fashion that excited you and motivated you and made you choose to go into that? So I also landed in New York City in the early 80s as a teen. I went to college relatively early. And when I hit Washington Square Park, hip hop was hitting at the yeah. same time. Yeah. And so th- the city itself was so inspiring. Mm. There was just fashion everywhere. Every, it was everything, every avenue was a runway, whether it was yeah. Madison Avenue, it was couture, whether it was right. downtown, right. it was fashion. But particularly the street fashion was so exciting to me. And also I... My aunt was a fashion stylist, and she worked with um, Richard Avedon, oh. and she worked at Vogue, and and she was kind. Of, she was my first mentor. Yes. And so I'd always been obsessed with fashion, and that was one of the things. Also at Duke Ellington, we had a fashion department, and we twirled on the runway. Oh, and, nice. And so I was able to kind of you know really explore fashion yes. and um, theater, and I found that there was a real relationship between fashion and art, fashion and theater, fashion and culture. Mm-hmm. And so when sure. we got when I got to New York, that became not only evident, it was exciting to see yes. how fashion and culture were um, the relationship between it and particularly hip hop because it was so new and so fresh and people were wearing things here that no one was wearing anywhere else yeah. in the world and you know and the the jewelry and the tracksuits and the, right. you know spinning your hat backwards and then I was like oh they put it backwards so they could spray paint but it looked cool yeah. like things were they were just um, out of necessity became an art became yes, an art form but it was also really People dressed to impress each other, mm-hmm. and they dressed with the intention of being individual. They dressed with the intention of giving you information about themselves. About themselves. So yes. it was like um, walking art gallery yeah. everywhere, yeah. like everywhere. Yeah. And so um, I just was drawn into the theatricality mm-hmm. of fashion and the art of it and the expression, because also, particularly for young black people or young people of color, Latino people, your body is one of the few places where you have some agency. Your body is one of the few places where you're unpoliced. And so that's why there was so much expression through the body Mm -hmm. and through how you presented. So the hair, the clothes, the dance. And the stories you decide to tell. Exactly. And so, and it became also a act of defiance yeah. and act of beauty um, and because my aunt was working in fashion I started working as an assistant to help yeah. put myself through school and then just the, the fashion world just grabbed me because yeah. it was also musically at the yes. time in the city it was not just hip-hop it was house, house music, music. And um, also like the dance, sort of that dancing. That dance holly, yeah. Yeah, and there, so there was a lot of fashion mm-hmm. in all of those, you know, buckets. And also um, punk, you know. So, the, so hip-hop and punk and house 
what I mean, it was, they grew up together. Yeah, and it was an explosion <laughs> yeah. of music and fashion and dance styles. Yeah. So that's um, that became more exciting than these the theater right institutes yeah. that were dry and didn't see me and all this stuff was happening on the street and yeah. in the clubs yeah so that's where I was going yeah was going. <laughs> you were going to the club to, Michaela yeah and the streets <laughs> every um, night um I was and yeah. you could but it was it really was an exciting like it was an exciting visual explosion like yeah. you're sitting next to Grace Jones and yes. you know and over there's Basquiat and there's yeah. and everyone's hanging out and no one's on their phones right. oh, you know yeah. and so you're <laughs> there were no phones right. to have yeah. and, and so it was just a, just a fashion show yeah. of um, an explosion of individuality mm. and and I think that's really it I've been on this journey around identity and individuality yes. um forever really yeah. and so the fashion kind of called me it was a, it was very um it was explicit in its in its intention to make you pay attention yes now you talked about you mentioned your body as having being one of the few places where you still have your own agency and mm -hmm. your own power over something. Let's talk about your first assignment at mm -hmm. Essence. Mm -hmm. So, mm, 1991, your first assignment at Essence Magazine was to style Anita Hill for the very tense, very public, epic testimony. Yeah. So, did you feel at the time styling her? Did you feel a responsibility to style her in such a way that? you were making a statement or she was making a statement and was that the first time that you understood that fashion or how you dress mm -hmm. can be political well you know it's interesting because i got to essence because of susan taylor mm -hmm. i was susan was a was a flashpoint for me she was she became mentor number 2 so my first mentor is joanne baker butler the stylist my second was susan taylor i saw susan taylor at an event and she looked exquisite, exquisite of course. Always, you know the hat, yeah. shoulder shoulder pads, <laughs> yeah, out. The, yeah. And 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 it looked like she didn't walk on the ground, like she, she floated. Levitated, she was, right? yeah, yeah, she was amazing. <laughs> and I remember she she met me, and I had on some outrageous outfit. <laughs> and she said, um, "Who are you?" And I was very proud because I just had this very small photo in Vogue, and I was yes. like, "I'm a stylist in yes. Vogue." And, and then she asked me, "What are you doing for your people?" Whoa, that happened. Whoa. Two weeks later, I was working at Essence. Whoa. She changed my life with one question. Oh, my gosh. Right. Okay. And so oh my I got there, and then it was Anita Hill. And, and interestingly enough, I wasn't a, as acutely aware of the impact mm. of what she was going through. Mm. And, and I remember discussing with Susan, the intention was for her to look beautiful. Yes. And feel powerful. Yes. And so, therefore, we chose um, a suit. A suit. That was um, fuchsia. It was pink. Because I had some other ones and, like, really beautiful, you know, navy, like, yes, power navy, suits. Great. Yes. And I remember S Susan distinctly saying, you know, but black women look amazing in, in color. color. In, yes. a, in a way that no one else could. And it gave her energy. Mm -hmm. And so, so yes, we were intended mm -hmm. to dress her in a particular way because that back then essence was the only place that would really really make it their business to not just love black women mm -hmm. but to elevate them and our goal as editors was to have your experience 
be at Essence like it could be nowhere else. Like we know you. Yeah. And Susan is the real deal. Mm-hmm. Like she really loves us. Yes. Um, and whether, you know, trends change and styles change and you have to change with them. Yes. But her, she taught me how to be an editor that loved the reader. Because there's lots of different kinds. Anna Wintour oh, yeah. loves the brand. And she is amazing at her job, obviously. But there's different kinds of ways to to be an editor. Absolutely. And so Susan really poured that into me. No matter what, you lo- you love your reader. Yeah, love and your so, audience. Yeah, and so that's so I serve black women in diff- different places in different ways. That, so I was never really brand loyal. Mm-hmm. wasn't like... Oh, I you know work for Essence or Vibe or Honey or BET because if you look at it, it's all these different platforms, yes. but the person on the other side is the it's same. The same, and so and even when I had a bout at Vanity Fair, I did almost all the the artists that were of color, and I thought about I think about black women wherever I am. Yes. So if it's at CNN or if it's at Vanity Fair or if it's I'm still talking to us. Yeah. No matter where I am, and Susan taught me how to do that. That's amazing. Now you talked about people changing and times changing. Do you think much has changed since Anita Hill? Has the culture changed? Yes and no. (laughs) Yes, because we have access to each other in a way that we never had before. before. We have tools in which we can organize and tell our own stories and go directly to folks. And the organizing principle, I think, is the biggest thing. And also helping to craft your own narrative Mm -hmm. and get stories out in a way that we couldn't before. before. So it's True. revolutionary. Yes. Um, however. The undertones. Yeah, and the institutions are built on the on patriarchal and white supremacist, like, foundations. So though, you know, though the outside can change, the foundation is very much the same. And chipping away and undoing foundations are very, 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 very difficult and take generations. And to be honest, at this point, I'm less interested in undoing institutions oh. and building new ones. Yeah. And, and and I feel like the younger generation of women, particularly women of color, are into the business of building something new and understanding, like, I'm not going to undo the White House. Look at the trash that we're dealing with. Like, <laughs> the, the fact that that could happen made it clear, and particularly clear to other others, white yeah. liberals. A lot of us, you know, who've been doing this work have understood how insidious and how baked into this culture the the notions of supremacy and patriarchy are. To the, to the deaf, you know, even the, you know, most, um, you know, the, the earnest... Yeah. You know, we love we love everybody, as Mariah yes, says. Course. But um, <laughs> but they didn't really. Well, we don't love know. everyone's thoughts and ideas. Yeah, and they didn't know. They really were ignorant to how insidious it was because they have been protected. When you never really have to struggle through patriarchy or racism or gender politics to have success, you don't know. Yes. And you're and you're hearing. You know, women, and you're hearing women of color tell you over and over again yes. and organize for you over and over again and, and do the labor of this country, and it still doesn't... I think this this administration is the first time it's actually hit others. We yeah. knew. We've been doing the work. We've yeah. been, you know, so I, I'm, I'm feeling optimistic. I'm only feeling optimistic because it's 2020. <laughs> um, 
but I'm feeling optimistic. Okay, that's good. Mm -hmm. um, I love the idea of creating your own culture. Um, and in a way, what you just described is a form of privilege, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's like benighted bliss. Like mm -hmm. you don't know about other people's struggles. So it doesn't really affect you mm -hmm. the same way. So I think it becomes vitally important to create another culture that is going to just have to get along you know alongside the current culture mm -hmm. but in creating a, a new culture what are the types of conversations that we should be having as women mm -hmm. as women of color with each other and also what are the types of conversations we should be having with other people mm -hmm. with men mm -hmm. well I think we're doing it right now uh, and particularly since this administration doing massive movements and marches are not a good strategy no. <laughs> because we're not safe. So we have maybe not even heard. Yeah, and 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 literally not safe because if if you saw people pointing guns at folks in Ferguson during an Obama administration, during a Trump administration, they will pull the trigger. Yeah. And we know that, yep. you know, people as organized, and, and I don't consider myself an organizer like Patrice and Alicia, and you know, there's some people that that's what they're brilliant at. Um, but it's more about having more intimate conversations, yes. more consistent intimate conversations with each other yes. he, like this yes. at dinner tables, having small groups, ha activating your community. Um, it's much more local where we should work because also you can see um success there yes. it's very difficult to look like you're gonna you know take down the white house or unseat the senate but you can change your you know council people mm -hmm. and people whose job it is to send your neighbor's children to jail like those are small but very, very impactful yeah so if I think to get more aware of your local politics and your local politicians, that's really impactful. Like yeah. it's not it's it's not a small it's thing. It's not a small thing. It's just targeted. Exactly. And I think in terms of having conversations outside, like with our, you know, non people of color family or men, um, it's tricky. I think we really we have to try to meet people where they're at. I think for for black women who do have a little bit of privilege and have a little bit of patience, perhaps we need to take on a little more. But you know, listen, I, there's a part of me that's that's really I'm tired of doing the work. Know you know, like I'm tired of watching us do the work. <clears throat> I'm tired of watching black women do the labor of for white women or or and for. Or, that's a whole nother podcast um, for men, you know, when, because it's just like how we raise children. They learn and grow by making their mistake and learning from it and gaining courage and knowledge. And knowledge. And so I feel like I don't know what we can do. Uh, you know, we can lead people to really good books. <laughs> you know, we can... Um, but I, I feel like I, they have to want to do the, the work. It and has to be an ongoing conversation. It does. Yeah. And, you know, it's a, t it's a tough history. It is. It is. You know, yeah. it's, there's a lot of reckoning. There's a lot of ancestral reckoning to do. And, and though there's no 
there's still so much poverty and so much, um, I mean, we're in cages, literally. And however, our ancestors, like we have pride. Yeah. You know, we have a lot of, of pride, yeah. you know, in, in that we have this kind of resilience and that we're still here and that black women are making it into spaces that never intended for us to be alive, let alone be leaders. So we have all this pride yeah. and, and, and maybe encouragement from that. I do not think in any way that makes it um, any, uh, I don't want to in, in any way discount how difficult it is and how much, how much injustice, like there's been very little justice mm. um, there is, but I wouldn't want to be anything else. I yeah. wouldn't want to have to really grapple with the history of how this country was built on genocide and enslavement. Like you stole land and stole labor and caused unthinkable pain and brutality. And those are your ancestors, and y'all got to deal with that. And 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 the energy remains. I mean, it's just throughout, of course. throughout generations. And it's gone unchanged. Sides. And it seemed, yeah. and that's what this administration is showing, the naivete that somehow because a bill was passed that that mentality just disappeared. Yeah. You know, there were people alive today that went to lynchings as entertainment and ate cold fried chicken mm. while they watched people hang. Those people are alive. Those people had children. Those people elect people, you know, yeah. 53 million people in this country elected an, a, a chaotic idiot racist. <laughs> you know, are, are there even any more words? I mean, 53 million. He's not the problem. No, he's do, no. he's one psychopath symptom. But 53 million people voted for him. And you don't know who they are. Right. You know, I Although you, Cambridge Analytica knows who they are. They sure do. Mm, so anyway. That's another I, podcast. <laughs> I, there's so many podcasts. There's so many podcast topics. So many, yeah. Okay, so um, the topic of this podcast mm. is... I love this. You said transformation earlier? Yeah, dedicated to transformation. Dedi that's right? great. Which is what you we need. always do and what we need. Yes. Um, but specifically about, you know, your image being your mm -hmm. identity and talking about, you know, race and gender in this current paradigm mm -hmm. of culture that we have. So we all know the relationship between um, aging and beauty. Mm -hmm. We all know. Um, Do we, though? Uh, yeah. This, so that's my question. Mm -hmm. Do we really know? Mm -hmm. And in, in this sort of n new culture that hopefully is being um, created, how, what exactly is the connection between beauty and identity or age and identity? Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's where I'm at right now. I know. Like, I'm literally at the crossroads of those spaces. Yes. And what does it look like to age um, honestly? Yeah. And to age with courage? And grace. And, you know, and the thing is less... I feel less that I want to age with grace and more like I want to age with gangster. Like I don't <laughs> like fierceness. Yeah, like part ferocity. of ferocity. Because because part and why I say that is because part of I, I feel that part of the push 
culturally is for us to disappear mm. and to just bow out gracefully. gracefully. Yeah, and just don't make any moves. Don't, don't make, make any, any waves. Noise, yeah. Don't make any noise because we make everyone nervous. We make younger women nervous because they're looking at one at one day, that's going to be me and, you know, that's <laughs> oh going to be my neck. And then, <laughs> you know, we make older, we make men nervous because they start to see their own mothers mothers or selves and they feel older mm. and less sexy around us because we so we make everyone nervous that's a lovely and position also, to be in <laughs> but we're at the top of our game like i've never felt more confident and it's when all your experience and knowledge are right there just like men like men peak you see their many men their they peak in their 50s and 60s and whatever you see them running for press women do too because it's just accumulation of experience and jobs and and having children or whatever your yes. life yeah. you you've gained a life yes and so it's diabolical to put women in a position where as soon as you've gained enough life to walk through this world with some confidence and gangster you're <laughs> asked to disappear mm. and so that is what I'm, um, and and also I don't want to be the next generation that passively doesn't communicate mm -hmm. with the women behind us. Yes, with my children or talk about I went through the change. What yes, the, well, you know what, what change? our generation We've been changing our, all our lives. I know our mothers didn't talk about menopause. Right. They don't talk about aging. Like to be to be made to feel shameful about life itself. Is criminal. And men don't talk about andropause. They don't talk about their version of menopause. They do not. Right? And so what is the alternative? If we're not if we're not aging, what are we doing? Right. We're dead we're, we're gone. We're dead. Right. Right. So this but it is really It's um, intricate. Yeah, and it's challenging because yeah. you're having a new relationship with yourself. Absolutely. Because I've I don't know about you, but I felt really unchanged from about 25 to 45. I had a pregnancy. Yes. That was the only like big thing. Yes. But my um, responses were the same. My size was generally the same. Uh, my sleep cycle, everything yes. was for like 20 solid years. Yes. I was kind of the same physical person. Yes. And then, then I wasn't. Happened. Right. <laughs> then my eyes, I re listen, listen, when my eyes, <laughs> I used to use Lancome, Hypnos, Mascara, yes. religiously. Yes. I used it forever, for yes. years, yes. right? So I switched one day because I was getting some samples. And I, Shirley, I literally <laughs> thought because I was using mascara, it was flaking and getting in my eyes. And that's why I'm at the, like, restaurant yeah, like this. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was my mascara. <laughs> that got in the way of your vision. And I remember I went to a, to an appointment and um, to a doctor's appointment. He said, how old are you? And I'm like, 45. And he said, oh, that's it. I'm like, what do you mean that? That's it. He said, you're aging, darling, or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. And I was just like, what, what are you talking about? Why didn't, and then why didn't anyone talk to me about this? Right. I feel like a crazy person going like, oh, my God, my <laughs> Change mascara. Change my mascara. <laughs> That's how little I knew. Anyway, so that, you know, and that, that was the first sign, like mm. my eyes and then, you know, other the, the slowing down and then the thyroid thing that we talked about. Yeah. Because also sometimes what conditions can happen at that time. So you also were thinking, oh, my God, I'm actually falling apart. Falling apart. And then you become that old lady. Like, or you want, like, you become what you saw your aunties. Like, they went from being these fly ladies yeah. to, like, 
all of a sudden they're wearing, I don't know, like those square clothes. Yeah. <laughs> the moo-moos or the... You know, not even fly moo-moo, because I love a good moo-moo. <laughs> I but, a good moo-moo. But you know what I mean? I and they And they start that track of taking pills. Oh. They st- and, and it's one or the other, like yeah. those thi- the thi- the diabetes things it's start like to come. It's like this cascade. Yeah, and they start around this age, and you can. And now I understand why, because li- like actual things are happening, and there's a low grade depression mm-hmm. that could happen. There, you have to have a very dynamic relationship with yourself with because yourself. things are. It's like being a. Um, Oh, sorry. No worries. It's like being a teenager in reverse. Yes. You know, when you're a teenager, things are just happening. What's that pimple? What's that thing? Why do I want to sleep? Yes. It feels kind of like that, but it's going another way. Right. And But you have to be alert and, and honest and also kind with yourself. Yes. Hard. Yeah. But it's so the, the esteem that you get when you're like, you know, no, I am not going down like, <laughs> like that. <this>. <laughs> <laughs> there are things I can do. There's, there, like I'm not helpless right, in this, not. this, you know, gravity pull and the, just the the looking at the mirror, going, who is that? And there's right, another this distribution little distribution of weight. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm I'm in that right now, and yeah. I do, and it's so. Let me tell you something though. When you, particularly with younger women. When you tell them that you're in, like, how old you are and maybe you look great or whatever, it's so encouraging and that you're also very open about yes. what's happening. Of course. They are also very um, grateful. Yes. And, like, my, I have an 81-year-old mother who is fly. Yes, I'm sure. And she is so, you know, inspiring to me. Or you watch, you know, Cicely Tyson at oh 94 oh working gosh. and bou- bouncing around. Yes. And, and you're going – or, or – um, Oh, oh, what's her? I just saw her. Um, oh my God, help me out. What's love got to do with it? Angela Bassett. Yeah, Angela Bassett. Ch- Ch- I saw Angela Bassett like at Black Girls Rock, and she had on this backless jumpsuit. Yes, amazing. It's inspiring. Amazing. I'm not. I'm not that inspired by you know. Who's got a great body? Sierra. Like, she's great. Yes. I look great at 30-some, too. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, but yes. she works hard. Like, no Absolutely. shade. It's gorgeous. Yes. But you know, to, to for Angela to hold it together like and that. beyond, yeah. Takes work. work. And, I mean, there's DNA, and certainly. Commitment. Yes. And commitment. However, yeah. we can be in inspiring spaces if we choose. Um, if we choose. And and so part of, I think, just for me, just in living is what's the, where, where are the possibilities mm-hmm. where you are now? Where are the possibilities to grow, be courageous, and inspire in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s? And so for me to, to now be in my 50s in that halfway point. Yes. You know, I'm in the middle passage, right? <laughs> and so how can I be inspiring uh, what can I find? What's the possibility yes. in this moment, and then expand that? Um, that's the goal. So right. I do feel it's very important to be out about. And I'm, I'm watching more of my friends and colleagues, like on Instagram. That a lot of people are talking about being in their fifties in a very open and public way. Yes. And going like, and so I think we're moving the needle yes. forward because also the twenty somethings and the thirty somethings. And the 40-somethings, 40s were so great. Um, <laughs> 40s are great. 
for them to see like life goes on and on and on and yes. on and on and on yeah so. absolutely well I love that and I think that's a, a good place you know to sort of switch over the topic a little bit but on just ending on possibility and choice mm-hmm. I mean both mm-hmm. of those inspire hope and and I think it's a wonderful place not only to leave off but also to start off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, thank you for listening to part one of the Forever Fab, Fab Forever Fab podcast interview with Michaela Angela Davis, and we'll be back for part two. Stay tuned. You've just listened to part one of Forever Fab podcast. Please stay tuned for part two coming up next. <laughs>